It's extraordinary video as complete strangers band together into a human chain to come to the rescue of a family caught in a riptide. The water, when it starts going around, there's nothing that can save you. 80, yes, 80 beachgoers rushed into the water and joined hands when they heard the cries for help. Well, our mom had to go in after me and my brother and the people made a human chain and pulled us out. Some are calling a water rescue over the weekend a true act of heroism. It happened in Panama City Beach. These Gulf waters look fairly calm right now, but that's just how people remember these same waters looking when this beach was in crisis. A dangerous riptide lurked just offshore. And you might remember those news reports about the Good Samaritans who formed a human chain off the coast of Florida to rescue swimmers caught in a rip current. And this is Our American Stories, and we love stories like these. Well, recently, these good Samaritans were reunited with the parents of the family they saved. Roberta Ursray and her husband, Brian, of Panama City, were enjoying a beach day at Panama City Beach when their two sons, Noah and Stephen, got caught in a rip current. All my boys were screaming and crying and begging, you know, for me to get them out. The Ursrays, their mother, at least two other family members, and two strangers who swam out to help Noah and Stephen, all became caught in the riptide as well. Nine people were now in danger of drowning, and the elderly mother was suffering from a heart attack because of the ordeal. Thankfully, Derek and Jessica Simmons were swimming with their family after dinner when they saw the Usrays stranded in the water and called out for strangers on the beach to link arms to reach them in the water. Let's try to get as many people as we can to uh, grab hands, grab wrists. We just kept yelling at the beach, people, we need help. The chain eventually grew to about 40 people. The swimmers were stuck nearly 70 yards away. The rescuers... <clears throat> the chain eventually grew to about 40 people. The swimmers were stuck nearly 70 yards away from the shoreline. The rescuers, whose quick thinking and actions quickly earned them praise, said they were just doing for the Usrays what they would want others to do for them. It was just on a whim. Everything just was real clear, you know. Um, when we got over and, and we, we no, noticed what was going on and, and we were already waist deep in the water, it was, just, it was just clear, get in the water, get them out. But we, I knew just on prior instinct of um, growing up in rivers and lakes, around rivers and lakes, right. that if you're too far out, you, you got to have something to get back in. We didn't have a rope or we didn't have anything, so I, the only thing that could come to my mind was Arm to arm, we, we can make length and we can get out to them. Jessica Simmons swam out to the Earth's Rays and helped bring each stranded swimmer back to the chain, which then pulled each of the stranded swimmers safely to shore. They were performing the chain. They were getting everything together. They were yelling at people. They were yelling that they need two more feet, two more feet to get to these people. While that was going, I had a boogie board, so I swam out there to give it to them right. to try and keep them afloat enough to, so the human chain could actually get to them in time. Derek and Jessica Simmons' mother was also there, and she had this to say. I believe that that's the way we were brought up. You know, if you can help someone in need, you always should help someone in need. And I would want someone to do that for my family. So mm -hmm. it was very important to me that we all join in and help. Amen. Roberta and Brian Ursray then took the opportunity to thank the Simmons family for saving their lives. Thank you. I mean, y'all were my angels that day. All of y'all, the whole chain, you know, Sean and Tabitha, all of y'all, y'all, y'all have, y'all were my angels that day that, that saved my family. 
And without y'all and God that day, we wouldn't be here. It was amazing to see the entire chain form. They just stopped doing everything they were doing to form, and at that point, it didn't matter who you were, what race you were from, what your background was. They stopped to help save my family. Derek Simmons closes things out with this message that he hopes people can take from this story. We get a lot of bad news. Um, there's a lot of things that go on in, in our universe, in our world, that shows a lot of hate. And I, I just hope that you know, we didn't do this for any limelight. We did it just, we did it because that's what we, we would want somebody to do for our family. And, you know, the, I think the message for me is, is that if you're unsure, you know, of course, I wouldn't want to hear of anybody hurting themselves, but do unto others as you'd want done unto you. So, you know, if you can, if you can help somebody, it doesn't have to save a life, but if you can feed them, feed them. If they're hungry, you know, that's just how we were brought up is that you, you lend a hand to anyone in need that you can't. And that's Derek Simmons, and that's the voice of America, and that's what we love featuring here on this story. No hate, just who Americans really are, almost all of us. And now it's time for Jesse Edwards and Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. By the time we get people to stop using their phones while driving, we'll have self-driving cars allowing us to use our phones while driving. Why do we assume that the zombie apocalypse has to have human zombies? Maybe zombie cows will be a threat to all of humanity. Our ability to swallow down the wrong pipe and almost choke ourselves may be the biggest design flaw of the human body. If you lock a locker, aren't you the locker? When rich people see the 10 things that all wealthy people do in articles, do they think to themselves, yep, that's totally true? Or do they say, damn, I don't do any of that? Before modern science and medicine, people were breathing without really knowing why. When moths die, do they hear a voice telling them to fly towards the light? I would pay someone to follow me around secretly with a camera just to know what I'm like from the third person. Life insurance is basically me making a monetary bet against a company that something bad is going to happen to me. Johnson & Johnson really missed their chance when they didn't use Ozzy Osbourne's No More Tears in their ads. If you get eaten alive by a wild animal, at least you're not going to die alone. They say no news is good news, but how can the news be good if there's no news in the first place? When Buzz Aldrin dies, his ashes could be sent on a probe to Mars so that while he was the second man on the moon, he could be the first on Mars. Knees are just leg elbows, and elbows are arm knees. If there's a low urinal for children, why can't there be a high one for tall people? Shower thoughts. And thanks for that as always, Jesse. And this is Our American Stories. To hear all of Jesse's shower thoughts, well, just go to ouramericannetwork.org. They're wild, they're weird, and we love them. This is Our American Stories.
Ali Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our special Fathers series, which tells the stories of fathers with special needs children. And it's brought to us by the Special Fathers Network, which matches up longtime fathers with special needs children, with brand new ones for fellowship and mutual counseling on their shared journey of ups and downs. And you can learn more about it at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. And now, here's our own Alex Cortez with this edition. Imagine, you're happily married, you have two children, and then this happens. I remember like it was yesterday when this all started to happen because I was, I had taken the kids to go drive somewhere to buy my wife flowers for Valentine's Day. And we were pulling back into our into our house and my, my, so my son is six, he's still in a car seat. Um, he had fallen asleep and I'm taking him out of his car seat and he goes into having the seizure and I'd never seen one before and it scared me to death. And then he was non-responsive after that. I didn't know what was happening and he wasn't, I mean, he was breathing, but he wasn't responsive after that first seizure. So I called my sister, who's a physician, and she is marrying somebody who is an emergency room physician. So I called her and then I got on the phone with um, her uh, then fiance, Matt, and he said, you need to take him to the hospital. He got rushed to the hospital. Um, He had a series of seizures, over a hundred of them in the hospital over the subsequent five weeks that he was hospitalized. And what it turned out to be was a was a viral infection, where the virus had crossed the in the blood-brain barrier into the central nervous system, and the brain and central nervous system um, don't have a defense mechanism against a virus. Ben fortunately lived, um, but he came away with damage from that uh, from that virus to his brain. You've been listening to Tony Uman an Indian immigrant who came to the United States at two years old. Now, a vice president of Fidelity Investments charitable arm, managing assets of over $20 billion. Not bad for an immigrant. And he's helped issue $3.6 billion in charitable donations. And that's just over the last year alone. His work, though, didn't start at Fidelity. You might be surprised by where Tony's career began. I actually spent a few years after school, about five years after I graduated from, from college in the restaurant and catering industry. Um, I was, uh, in fact, when my son was born, I was working as I was managing a kosher catering company in, uh, in Cincinnati. Um, whoa, 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 wait a minute. An Indian managing a kosher catering company? I just want to make sure I heard that right. The people that owned that uh, that company, I was uh, I was friends with, and uh, their daughter had uh, you know was manager for them, and she had moved to uh, Colorado, and they were looking for somebody. I thought this might be fun, but then when when my son was born in 1997, um, I uh, I thought I need to get I need to do something where I can earn more money and stop working weekends and and that kind of thing. And good thing he did, because after his son's seizure nearly six years later, Tony would need that extra time handling the fallout of his son's viral infection. Eventually, he was discharged from the, uh, the ICU, spent another week in the hospital, and 
he, he was down to you know, 35 pounds. Um, he had to relearn how to walk. It was just, it was, it was a challenge. Um, so we thought we just need to deal with these, these medical things and try to get the seizures under control and then Ben would be back to normal. And then we realized that you know, this, is a, this is a profound brain injury that was caused by this virus. His, uh, his cognitive deficits actually show up a lot like autism, even though he doesn't have autism because he wasn't born with it. But if he was tested, you know, as though for autism, he would test on the autism spectrum. So some of those interventions were the same. You might be thinking to yourself, I've heard of traumatic brain injuries affecting cognitive abilities, but a virus? The reason you don't see a lot of people walking around with this is because very frequently somebody that, that faces the same thing dies rather than, you know, comes away with a, with a brain injury. Ben might be alive, but his life would completely change. His brain functions cognitively at about a third grade level, making everyday life a challenge. If you look at Ben, you can't, you can't tell. But one of the things that he has a challenge reading is facial expressions and emotions and social context and uh, may misunderstand, you know, might think somebody's angry when they're not angry at all. Um, so socially, that can be a challenge, right? If he was in a job setting, and he'd have to be in a very accommodative setting to be able to, to do that. What was very heartbreaking, you know, thinking through a career, and we went through this for a number of years, is Ben always wanted to be a firefighter and was, you know, fascinated with anything having to do with fire rescue. And, and years later, he still said, you know, I want to be a firefighter. And so when we have these discussions and, you know, the special ed programs would ask him to start thinking about what he wanted to do. And, well, I want to be a firefighter. And he did not have an awareness of his disability. He knew under, he'd heard the term special needs, but he just wasn't, um, well, why can't I be a firefighter? Right. You know, and uh, and trying to explain that to him without putting a label or having him his own, like the fact that he's somehow less than was hard. I mean, one is just, you know, it's heartbreaking as a father to, you know, here's something he wants to do. And yet he can't do it because of his uh, his disability. And two, just he doesn't have an awareness of the, the fact that he can't uh, he can't do that. Ben's career aspirations might have changed, but thankfully, unlike most families with special needs children where 75 to 80% end up in divorce, his parents' marital status stayed the same. Having our, our nuclear family stay together, I think that was a, a huge help. If Bev and I had not stayed together, I mean, that would have that would have been a huge blow to, to Ben's care and, and, this, and the things that he needed. In fact, he could stay in one house and he still had, you know, you know two parents there was a, was, was, a, was a huge support benefit for him. This has been good for Ben, but has it also been good for Tony's marriage? Was it easy on our marriage? No. It gave us different perspective on, on what, you know, where to put our energies and you know probably and, and I would I would say probably what it you know having all this this challenge you know took away was um, focus on fighting over frivolous things right yeah that's a silver lining and the silver linings would not be limited to Ben's parents going back to like our daughter Grace she's growing up now 
seeing this stuff happening to her older brother, seeing all of the resources and attention, you know, sucked away from the family into doing what we had to do there. And um, she wasn't neglected, but she didn't have the same kind of, you know, attention that she would have had had this all this not happened. And when she's coming through, you know, young adulthood, she's 17 now and going into the preteen years and trying to figure out who she is and, you know, and, you know, for a while, this whole idea of having a family that's different because we have this son with special needs that sometimes, you know, might do embarrassing things in public was very difficult for her. But she's, you know, come full circle as well. She uh, she has a great deal of respect for her brother and the things that, uh, what, what she has seen him go through and come out the other side of. I mean, she'll even say, she's like, Ben's one of my favorite people in the world. I think what she has um, gotten was the strong sense that people matter and that you do whatever you have to do when somebody you love needs something and you move heaven and earth to make it happen. And I think uh, she's seen that. She's, you know, 17 going on 35. She just thinks about her future and all this all this stuff. And she said, well, Ben's going to live with me when, when when you guys are gone, right? Meaning like, she's talking about Bev <laughs> but, 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 but and I after we pass away. And, and she said, well, what's that going to mean if I get married? And I just said, Grace, you know, just live your life. We'll make plans for Ben. And, uh, and you just... Um, you just live your life and we'll see where things you know are you know three decades from now but you don't have to think about that now uh, but it just shows that she cares about her brother and she wants to make sure that that he has a good life in the, in the future and what an amazing young woman what a father and we hear over and over again in the interviews for this special father series that the greatest hope of a parent with a special needs child is that they outlive that child by just one day even just one hour because they don't know if there will be anyone else on this earth who will care enough about their child when they're gone. When we come back, our special father series here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with this powerful special father's feature on Tani Uman, his bride Bev, his son Ben, and his daughter Grace. Let's continue the story. As strange as it sounds, after Ben's virus struck them at random, their family is stronger than ever. They newfound strength that they would need for situations like this. So Bev and Ben and Grace had gone to um, her aunt's house, and her aunt has a pond in the back of the house that's for swimming. So they keep it clean, and there's but it's a pond; it's not a swimming pool. Um, I was at her mom's house actually. I was I had to give a presentation the next day, so I was preparing for it for uh, for work. So I wasn't there, and so 
you know, I get a call from Bev saying, hey, we're about to head back. And then I, I hear her yell out, Ben. So Ben was waiting near the, the edge of the pond as a seizure and slips into the water. Um, while he's having a seizure. And so all I heard was, and she never hung up the phone, I heard her scream, Ben, and then I just, I was listening, I just didn't know what, what happened. So he went under the, the, the water, and the, the pond was, I'm, I think it was about 15 feet deep, and you can't see to the bottom just like you can with the pool, and Ben happened to be wearing a white shirt. Um, and so Bev saw the white shirt, was able to go down, and he's still seizing at the bottom of this pond. You know, in the middle of a seizure, the, the the positive to that is when you have a seizure, you don't your breaths are very shallow, and you, she wasn't taking in a lot of water. Um, she almost couldn't get him. I mean, she had to go down, you know, try to pull him up, couldn't pop to the surface of the water, yelled for help, and the only people there there are my um, my my daughter Grace and her mom. And, and Grace didn't know where Bev was because she heard her yell and then she'd go back under the water and didn't see anything. So the way she describes it, and she just she was at the bottom of the pond trying to pull him up and, uh, and she was just, she just said, God, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna leave my son down here. Either he comes up with me or I'm, I'm down here with him. He just popped out and he just they got to the surface she got him to the side, and just then, when he's like his head, you know, cleared the water, he comes out of the seizure. And when that happens, he takes he took a really deep breath. If that had happened under the water, he would have died because it would have taken in a lung full of water. So he's out, he's conscious again. Nine one one has called, and he's taken to a local emergency room. And they said we need to keep him because he was having trouble breathing, and there's this risk of it's called secondary drowning, where the trauma to your lungs from taking in, in this case, it was like some pond water and some other junk. Um, your, your lungs start to produce more fluid and you can drown in your own fluids. So they had to transfer him to a hospital, the pediatric intensive care unit, and he was in that hospital for, I think, another week or so before he was discharged. So that was incredibly traumatic for Bev. It was incredibly traumatic for Grace because by that time, you know, by the time Ben got out of the water, then Grace was there helping him to drag him out. Um, it was traumatic for me from a distance. She finally got back on the phone and told me what happened. And I was I was still waiting there. This was this you know several minutes had elapsed. It, it seemed like an eternity, but it wasn't it wasn't you know that long of a period of time. And um, anyway, so that began uh, began another journey. But that was recovery from that for Bev and for Grace was uh, was difficult. Bev had some post traumatic uh, stress out of that. And here's Tony on how he deals with all of this. I think what's hard is trying to make sense of it all. And that's, that's, I think that perhaps that is where, um, you know, we, we find comfort in our, in our faith. And so, I mean, I, as a Christian, I believe that, you know, we are, um, we're spirit beings, you know, that, um, you know, that they're having a you know, physical life experience. We're created by God and that, uh, ultimately where we're going, is a place where, where things are right, and uh, and so I, I, a lot of people ask me over the years, like you know, were you angry at God that this uh, that this happened? It was, was it wasn't through anybody's fault, you know. Particularly, it was just one of these you know, these difficult things that, that that happens in life. I never was angry at God because I I see like where things are going. I, I have a belief that 
Ben's going to be without impairment or seizure someday. Whether it's in this life or the next, I don't know. I hope it's in this life, but having a hope that it will happen in eternity, you know, allows me to deal with what's unfair right now. We still do everything that we can to provide support and accommodation for Ben, and you know, our hope is something miraculous will happen. But every day, every week, every year, where we deal with the the day to day, with the ultimate hope of things being set right one day, maybe beyond this physical life. But without hope, I don't know how people get through difficult things. Difficult things such as trying to figure out how to control Ben's seizures. There was a 10-year period of time we really didn't have seizure control at all, and then it was just moderate seizure control. It's only been within the last year that we've had pretty decent seizure control. Ben had a, a device implanted last fall called a vagal nerve simulator that over time has really worked. And uh, he has not had a seizure in the last seven months. And what we didn't realize over that time, of the previous time, just because we did what we had to do, was that we were constantly living in the state of hypervigilance, even when we were asleep, because for the a number of years when Ben first started having seizures, he'd only have them when he was asleep. So we would jump at every little noise. We were just ready to, to move into fight or flight mode, you know, when any little stimulus was, was out there. And that, over a long period of time, is not a good place to be. I can only imagine. And here's Tony's closing advice. It's easy to get burned out. And, um, you know, if I had to look back over things I would have done differently and things I've learned is um, know that burnout can happen. And uh, you can get, you know, stretched beyond your capacity by just pushing yourself to do things that just need to be done. And uh, we need outlets. And so whatever that looks like to build in you know, things for, for husband and wife, for them to get away together. Um, that was something that Bev and I didn't do enough of because we just, there simply wasn't anybody that can handle the medical issues that was going out with Ben. But, you know, looking back, I would have, we would have, should have found more creative ways to do that. That would have, you know, helped our marriage more in the early years just to, you know, to invest in each, in each other in our, in our marriage and then invest in ourselves. So just taking time away, whether it's even just a walk, you know, and, and when, when, when time allows, Bev and I are both pretty driven people. And, uh, Bev also is just, I mean, she's just, she's just a tornado. I mean, she'll just, she'll do, especially when it comes to her kids, do whatever has to be done. I mean, that incident that I mentioned at the pond is evidence of that. She would have given her life for her son if that's what it took. Um, but burnout can happen if you push yourself too hard. And so that is a, uh, a big thing to watch for, especially when there, there are, there are challenges. Um, and, you know, have people in your life that could recognize when that, that before it comes up, because I don't, I don't recognize when I'm getting burned out when I'm in the middle of it. Bev does. I can recognize when it's happened to her or friends and family that are around us can, uh, you know, that if we give them permission to speak into our lives in that way and ask for it, that can really protect against, uh, you know, getting off balance. And great work on that, Alex. And this Special Fathers series is brought to us by the Special Fathers Network, which matches up longtime fathers with special needs children with brand new ones for fellowship and mutual counseling on their shared journey. 
And Tony Uman, thank you for giving that story to our audience. So many families go through what you're going through, and what a way to reach out to them and connect them. Your beautiful bride, Bev. That's, that statistic is staggering. 75 to 80% of the couples that have special needs kids end in divorce. Staggering. Also to Grace and Ben. This is Our American Stories, the human story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. When you hear that music, it's time for a final thoughts. And this can be a eulogy, a remembrance of someone important in your lives or an American life who died. And today we have a final thoughts for you. Delbert Earl Fincher Jr., 86 years old, passed away in May at his home in Brandon, Miss- passed away at his home in Brandon, Mississippi. He was born on November 2, 1930 in Marlowe, Oklahoma. No, he was not someone famous or a person people would recognize, but he lived in ways that everyone who knew him took notice of. At 86 years old, he joined the greeting team at his church, Pine Lake, here in Mississippi, and was there every Sunday in his wheelchair with his wife of 59 years, Peggy. And today we're going to listen in on some of the funeral service. Here is Dr. Chip Henderson, the pastor of Pine Lake Church, at the start of the funeral service title of our program says a celebration of life hey we have we have a celebration today because we hadn't seen the last of mr earl we're gonna get to see him again and uh, we've come today to celebrate that and as i look around this room and i just want to say to you guys who are here today as friends thank you all of us have memories of mr earl all of us could stand up here and tell stories for the rest of the day and and maybe for the rest of the week I remember his servant spirit, cutting grass at the church or fixing my lawnmower one time. And, and I tell people often that, you know, uh, you, you preach your funeral service while you're living. Now remember this, you, you preach your funeral while you're living. Sometimes people come up to me and they say, man, that was a good funeral. And I say, it's because that person lived a good life. It's, e- it's easy. Some people come up and say, man, that was, that was a rough funeral. It's because they didn't give us much to work with, right? <laughs> Mr. Earl gave us plenty to work with and so we come today with sad hearts but we come today with glad hearts knowing he lived well and so we we miss him but we honor him you preach your funeral while you're living well said now here's dr jeff holland who followed pastor chip in this service if you're like me you may have thought that this day would never come for earl fincher Earl cheated death so many times that we thought he was going to outlive us all. And I literally thought he had cheated death one more time. This past Monday morning, a week ago today, I got a text message from Pam and she said, Hey, Daddy's declining rapidly. 
We would love for you to come over and, and pray. Mom would love for you to come over and pray over him. And so I went over there and we got together and sure enough, he was unresponsive. And I literally thought that at any minute they were going to tell me he's gone till the next morning. And so then I, I get right outside their house and I finally get a text from Pam and she says, Daddy's sitting up in the bed eating breakfast. And so I said, well, would it be okay for me to come in and visit with him? And she said, absolutely, please come. And so I went in the house, and they took me back to the bedroom. And there he was, sitting up in the bed, finishing a McDonald's biscuit that somebody had brought to him. And then after he finished those biscuits, he said, where's my donut? <laughs> and he shared a donut and a cup of coffee with me. One of the first things he said to me was, Jeff, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to tell Larry Stagey that I'm probably not going to be at my post Sunday morning. And I said, Mr. Earl, I'm not going to tell Larry a thing. Because what I saw yesterday and what I see today, you're liable to be there on Sunday morning. Well, he had the last word on that, and he was right. Let me ask you, how many people do you know are getting approved for serving with children when they are 83 years old? Earl did. 2014, just three years ago at 83, he signed up to serve in our children's ministry sports camp. And then in April of, of this year, at 86 years of age, Earl Fincher responded to the call of our church to make room in his heart for more people. And he did so by signing up, 86 years old, by signing up to serve on our greeter team. And less than two weeks before he died, he was at his post, in his scooter, at the equipping hall entrance, making people feel welcomed as they came for worship. Earl's hardest service, well, it marked his entire life. But folks, this is not just something that Earl had learned to do in his old age. As a younger man, when Pine Lake was located on Spillway Road, as Pastor said, many times he would take his lawnmower up to the church, and for years he mowed the grass at the church. He was known by the children there as the candy man as they knew that he had some sweet treats in his pocket, and whenever they came to church, he would always bless them with some candy. And I've thought a lot about the way that Earl Fincher served. And it occurred to me that there were two qualities of his life, and there are going to have to be two qualities of any person's life who's going to be devoted to serving others. Quality number one is he has surrendered. He has surrendered. I remember the story of when King David was about to die and he was about to hand the kingdom over to his son Solomon. The last word, some of the last instructions that David gave to Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9 were this, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, and serve Him with a whole heart and a willing mind. 
To serve God with a whole heart and a willing mind implies that you've already surrendered to God. To let Him lead your life. And so I asked Earl on Tuesday morning, Earl, when did you open your heart to Jesus? When did you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? And Earl shared with me it happened when he was about junior high school age. And he told me that he had turned from his sin and he had trusted Christ as his Savior and he had surrendered his his life to Him. Folks, that was about 73 years ago when Earl committed his life to Jesus Christ. And so if you do anything for 73 years, chances are you're going to get pretty good at it. Jeff shares the second quality Earl had that helped him serve others. But there was a second quality needed if you're going to serve others, and that is selflessness. A selflessness about you. Serving others doesn't always happen when it's convenient for you. Serving others doesn't always fit in with your time schedule or when you think it ought to take place. 1 Peter 4.10 reminds us to use whatever gift we have received to serve others. Whatever gift the Holy Spirit has given us, we're to use that gift to employ it in service to other people. And to do this requires an attitude that says, put others first. Karen shared with me just the other day that she could never remember a single time in her life when she needed her daddy and she let him know and he wasn't on his way to help her he was always making sure that he did everything he could to serve and to bless his family he was a hard worker jordan his oldest granddaughter shared this she said in her 29 years her granddaddy showed up at every recital every ball game or anything his grandkids were involved in. And then it didn't stop with that generation. His great-grandkids can say the same thing of him. Just about a week before he died when he was so sick, Earl was sitting at the ballpark cheering his Joshua on in his baseball game. Selflessness. He finished off with what Earl would have desired for those at his service. In a very real sense, Earl didn't want this day to happen. He said, just let UMC come and pick up my body and let that be done. He didn't want to have this gathering, and I told the family, this isn't for him, this is for you. But I believe that if some way Earl could speak to us right now, He would say this, Don't make a fuss about me. Tell everyone about my Jesus. He's the one who made my life worth living. You see, Earl knew the joy of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that would be Earl's desire for you today. So, I close. And as I close, I'd like to read the scripture the family chose for today. They sent this to me in a text on Friday, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the two verses that they chose on the screen. Verse 7, 
but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Everything that Earl did, every way that he ever served, every gift he ever gave, every project he ever tackled, it wasn't Earl. It was the power of God working through him. And there you have it, Earl Fincher, just a guy next door, but not really. Surrender and selflessness, hard work, and always showing up, always being there for the kids, then the grandkids, then the great-grandkids. This is Our American Stories, Earl Fincher's story. our American stories and no matter how many times we've heard the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey teams still all too amazing to believe heroics at Lake Placid in 1980 we want to hear it all over again this adventure seems even more unlikely now than it felt decades ago whether this is your first or most recent time hearing the story we promise to raise the requisite lumps in the requisite throats adding new details to an all-too-familiar picture. It was more than a hockey game. It was us against them. It was freedom versus communism. Nobody gave us a hope in Halloween. It was a sliver of the Cold War played out on a sheet of ice. Here you have a bunch of fresh-faced college kids taking on the big, bad Soviet bear in the United States, in the Olympics. The confluence of events was so extraordinary, it can never happen again. Nobody paid attention to what Americans said in the world anymore. Our hostages had been taken, and we couldn't get them back. The Red Army went into Afghanistan. We couldn't get them out. It might have been the all-time low point for American public self-esteem. Who knew that these kids would become the vehicle for making people feel excited and proud again to wave a flag? It was a miracle. David slew Goliath. It was the greatest sports moment of the 20th century. No one could know how important one game could possibly be to a nation that seemed to be losing its way. Certainly not in 1979, when a weary America heard from its embattled leader, who told us we were a nation in crisis. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. President Carter was seen as a an expression of the American self-doubt and lack of self-confidence of the mid-70s. Here's Vice President under Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale. 
Our public support was eroding rapidly. You could feel it when you're out with people, when you're giving speeches, when you're shaking hands. America, I think, began to wonder whether we'd lost our edge. In the 20 years since winning the gold medal at the 1960 Olympics, American teams had become increasingly unable to compete with the dominant Europeans, especially the Soviet Union, whose players were amateurs in name only. The goal was to avoid being embarrassed at home. So in July of 1979, the best amateur players in the country were invited to try out for the 1980 Olympic team. They invited us all to Colorado Springs and they divided us up into four teams. Basically, Eastern guys, Michigan guys, Minnesota guys, and an at-large team. Over the course of 10 days in Colorado Springs, those four teams played a round robin. It was a nerve-wracking situation. It was a pressure-packed situation. And as that tournament went on, it was being evaluated by Herb Brooks. Minnesota native Herb Brooks never went to charm school. He was abrasive and intense. He was also the best college hockey coach in the country at the University of Minnesota. People were a little afraid of him. He'd always been considered kind of an outsider, had his own way of thinking, his own way of doing things. And he already had a history with the Olympic team. As a University of Minnesota player, Brooks thought he had made the team in 1960. He was even in the team picture. But at the last minute, Coach Jack Riley added a new player to the roster, and someone had to go. The someone was Herb Brooks, cut just one day before the team left for the games. A crushed Herb Brooks immediately called his father to vent. So I called and said, Dad, this whole thing is bullshit. Eastern coach halls, fixed all politics. And I went through the whole thing. And finally, my father said, you're done. I said, yeah. I said, well, I keep your bleeping. Keep your mouth shut. I heard enough of that. You get back and thank the coach. Get your ass in the locker room. Wish your teammates well. And get your ass home. That was my father. God rest his soul. I said, yes, sir. So I came home. Watching this thing unfold, the Americans got hot. And they won our country's first gold medal. I'm watching this thing on TV. My father looked over at me. He says, looks like the coach cut the right guy, didn't he? Just bang it. That left unfinished business in Herb Brooks's life. He had something to prove. He was on a mission. A mission to shake American hockey out of its slumber. First, Brooks had to trim the roster from 80 to 26. Tough part will be getting it down to 20 before the opening ceremonies. Behind the Iron Curtain, the Soviets were the best hockey team in the world, perhaps the strongest ever assembled, and everybody knew it. Vladislav Tridiak grew up outside Moscow and became immersed in the Soviets' communist sports machine at a young age. He developed into perhaps the greatest goaltender to ever play and starred on the Soviet national team for over 15 years. Vladislav Tretiak. You score on Tretiak, keep the puck. It doesn't happen often. By 1980, Boris Mikhailov was already a 10-year veteran of the Soviet national team and the most recognizable face in international hockey. Here's Boris Mikhailov. Sport was tied with politics, and any victory had big political undertones, especially during the Olympic Games, when the general secretary and everybody else was worried about how we would represent our country. Our task was only to place first. They were government-sponsored magicians on ice, 
The goal was to win for the motherland and to show the world that Karl Marx had it right. They played hockey the way we played basketball, with the same kind of control of the puck, the same kind of intricate offensive patterns, and of course the presence and goal of Tretiak. How could you beat him? Back in the U.S., Herb Brooks had been contemplating that same question for years. After all, how many times does one have to get hit with the same hammer and sickle before they learn? We, uh, we also need to change the way we play the game. North American hockey had forever been a very linear, dump-and-chase style of hockey, unlike the Soviets and Europeans, who played an artistic, very free-flowing system built on finesse, speed, conditioning, and overlapping movements. Most of all, team chemistry. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. And when we come back, the miracle on the ice in 1980, the 1980 Olympic Games, when we continue. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's 1980 performance. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. I tried to develop a team that would throw their game right back at them. But first, Brooks would have to get his players to start thinking as a team, which wouldn't be easy. How's it looking? A lot of guys from Minnesota and Boston. Let's go! The rivalry between the University of Minnesota and Boston University was one of the fiercest in all of college hockey. Well, how about it, boys? Look like hockey to you? You want to settle old scores, you're on the wrong team. As much as I was a Boston hockey player and I had pride in my roots as a Boston hockey player, I had an enemy, and my enemy was the University of Minnesota. And the Boston guys, you know, we thought we were pretty savvy, and, you know, there were guys that didn't lock their doors or left their wallets out in plain sight. We thought, you know, these guys are a bunch of hicks from the cow pastures. I wanted to blur the, the boundaries of our country, build a we and an us in ourselves as opposed to an I, me, myself. Our spirit was going to be a big asset. And you can't have that type of thing if you have pockets of individuals and that there's not those team-building exercises throughout the year. To fill the most important role, Brooks picked 22-year-old Boston University goaltender Jim Craig, the man who would backstop history. You know, people I speak to say Craig's game has been off since his mom died. <laughs> they were seeing when his game's on. Craig was recovering from the recent death of his mother Margaret to cancer. Starting in August of 79, Brooks began employing his main team-building exercise, beginning a rugged six-month pre-Olympic training program with a strategy. Well, maybe if they hit him, they won't have time to hit each other. To bond them as a team, his players needed one common enemy. I'll be your coach. Him. I won't be your friend if you need one of those. I remember when he told us, I'll be your coach, but I won't be your friend. And I'm like, boy, this is going to be a long year. He quoted in the paper that I had a million dollar set of legs and a 10 cent fart for a brain. He'd give you that glare and that look, and it's like, oh my God, what did I do wrong now? I can honestly say that uh, there was no sense of regionalism on that team. There was a sense of Herbieism. Brooks didn't just put up a wall between himself and the team. He threw in a moat and alligators too. 
I need you to stick tight with his kids. One of the first things Herb told his assistant coach, Craig Patrick, was, I'm going to be tough on them, and you are going to have to be the one who keeps everyone together. Okay. It was an elaborate and flawlessly constructed game of good cop, bad cop. He would later call it his loneliest year in hockey. Here's Coach Brooks. A lot of these guys being college All-Americans, they were never pushed like that, never pulled. And I wasn't trying to put greatness into anybody. I was trying to pull it out, pull it out way up here. And I don't like coaches that try to put it in because they think they've got all the answers. But you got to believe in them, uh, have high standards uh, of them, and pull it out. And my favorite coach, John Wooden right here, I think he would concur with that. As September arrived, it was time to start playing against future Olympic competition. So Brooks took the team to Europe for a series of exhibition games. Before a game against Norway, a team they would have to face at the Olympics, he issued a challenge. I said, guys, we're gonna have to play the Norwegians in qualifications. So we do it tonight. We send a message right now. But playing flat and uninspired hockey, the U.S. could only muster a 3-3 tie against a team they should have trounced. Brooks was furious. You guys don't want to work during the game? No problem, we'll work now. Goal line. He's standing there with his suit on, and he makes us all get behind the net, and on the goal line, and he starts blowing his whistle. And we did what are called herbies, which are blue line back, red line back, far blue line back, all the way down and back. Think you can win on talent alone? Gentlemen, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. Again. Two or three of those would be tiring. Blue line back, red line back, blue line back, down and back. 10 or 12 of them would be excessive. You better think about something else, each and every one of you. When you pull on that jersey, you represent yourself and your teammates. And a name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. Get that through your head. Again. And we did them for about 45 minutes to an hour. The rink attendant turned the lights off on us and we still skated in the dark. In the dark, he's screaming at us. Booming voice around this empty arena. How about it, Silky? You gonna be the first one to quit on me? It was pretty intense. The message went out right then. They're not gonna play the game like that and disgrace their abilities or our collective efforts. that moment probably had more to do with us gelling as a team, feeling like we were a group, a family. We looked at each other and said, you know, basically he can do anything he wants to us. He's not going to break us. The following night, the teams played again. The United States won 9-0. to zero. But there were still six cuts to be made, and Brooks was making it clear that no one was safe. Not even the team captain. You better start putting the puck in the net, Rizzo, or you're not going anywhere. Here's team captain Mike Arruzzioni. Two weeks before the Olympic Games, he calls me and he's going to cut me from the team. You're not good enough. You shouldn't be here. I never should have taken you. I'm going to send you back. Don't think I won't do it. And I'm thinking, he might just do this. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow. The word got down that Arruzzioni's job was in jeopardy. So everyone said, if he'll cut the captain, where do I stand? Which is exactly what Brooks wanted. Timmy! What's he doing here? Hey, you guys know he is? Turning the screws even tighter, he brought in new players for tryouts just weeks before the Olympics, provoking the same fear in his players 
that Brooks himself experienced in 1960 when he was cut from the Olympic team at the last minute. But this was a new generation of player, and they'd had enough. Assistant coach Craig Patrick approached Brooks on the team bus. Her, some of the boys want to have a word. Here's defenseman Jack O'Callaghan. And I said, you know, Herb, I don't think you should do it. I think it's wrong. We're going to Lake Placid in a week. I mean, stop it. Get rid of these guys and let us get serious about this. And I was looking for that moment where their cohesiveness and strength of association was such a strong bond. And then I would just cut the cord. And that was the moment. Brooks sent the late additions back home. He trimmed the roster to 20 and kept his captain. Herb never did anything on a whim. He planned. And I think he felt that maybe this was the last test to see how close these players really are. Twelve Olympic team members were from Minnesota, four were from Boston, and two apiece were from Wisconsin and Michigan. Yeah. But just days before the Olympics, the Americans had one more yeah, test to take. Well, I still don't know why you scheduled this, Herb, but get your guys to New York. They've got a game to play. On February 9th, 1980, at Madison Square Garden in New York City, they skated onto the ice to play an exhibition game just three days before the start of the Olympics. But to their opponents on this night, it wasn't just an exhibition. The Soviets had just recently embarrassed the NHL All-Stars, the best of the best, defeating them six to nothing. But before the game, Brooks told his team to go out and have fun. Have fun? Brooks himself later described the Garden Game as a ploy. He said, what could possibly be gained by playing the Soviets tough and waking them up? We got crushed and we thought, these guys are in another world. They just kicked us around that rink. The goals they scored were, you could have filmed them, they were so beautiful. They were like robots. When they scored a goal, they never smiled. I don't think I ever saw them smile. We were about ready to stand up and applaud him. We didn't see anything like that before. You know, guys hitting elbow. Did you see that goal? Did you see his move? It's like, we were spectators. I looked up at the scoreboard. It said 10 to 3. It might as well have said 20 to nothing. 10-3 made it sound closer than it was. It was no contest. There couldn't have been a greater low point, given the preparation and the, and the work that we had put in. It was very demoralizing. As each team left New York City and headed five and a half hours north to Lake Placid, their future seemed clear. Here's ABC's 1980 Olympic hockey announcer, Al Michaels. Anybody who left Madison Square Garden that day thought to themselves, the Soviets will win every game in the Olympics, take home the gold medal, and never be challenged. And the U.S., all you knew is that when it came time to face the big bear, they had no chance. As discouraging as the loss to the Soviets was, it was not something on the minds of Americans. Throughout 1979, as the hockey team was preparing to compete in the Olympics, Americans at large were also competing with the harsh realities of everyday life. Here again is Michael Ruzioni. Look at the economy. Look how much money we're paying for gas. Inflation was absolutely ridiculous. People just didn't feel good about the United States. A lot of people wondered where we were headed. And more on this great story from Lake Placid, New York, 1980, our Olympic hockey team. The story continues after these messages. 
This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's miracle on ice in Lake Placid in 1980. And then, in November, just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse... This is NBC Nightly News. They did. With Jessica Savage. Good evening. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy and took dozens of American hostages. On November 4th, which was a really rainy day, a hundred or so Iranian students climbed over the walls of the U.S. embassy, yelling, Magbar America, death to America. In a few seconds, uh, the door was knocked down and Iranians with automatic weapons uh, stood right in front of me and uh, held them against my head. This morning, for the first time... Barry Rosen and 51 other Americans would be held hostage in Iran for the next 444 days. They would come into our cells and hold us up against the wall and use an automatic weapon and count from 10 to 1 just to scare us. Iran's Ayatollah taunted and mocked President Jimmy Carter. Carter tries to frighten us on the economic front. He does not have the military courage to attack us. It was a constant nightly embarrassment to all Americans to see our influence in the world seemingly ebbing away. Every night on the evening news they'd burn an American flag for us. We were not feeling very good about ourselves. In December, it would get even worse. Day 54 in Iran, and while there has been no significant change in the hostage situation, there has been a major development in the country next door to Iran, Afghanistan. During the last three days, more than 5,000 Soviet combat troops have been airlifted into Kabul. Up to another 50,000 Soviet troops have massed along Afghanistan's northern border. As one administration official said privately, this is the grossest piece of international behavior in some time. The period after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was uh, one of the tensest periods of the entire Cold War. It was always a potentially dangerous situation that if it ever had gotten out of control would have meant the end of the world as we knew it. It's very important for the world to realize how serious a threat the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is. The Cold War was getting colder by the day, and with the Soviets on American soil, they were encouraged to see the American press blaming America for the world's woes. Newspapers were full of articles like blaming Americans for everything. So an attitude for the entire Olympic team, let's show them who we are. Let's show them who are the greatest. Let's show them who are the strongest. And let's show them on their soil. The Winter Olympics began on February 12, 1980. No one was expecting a showdown between the Americans and the Soviets. Not even the team captain. Here again is Mike Ruzioni. I know you guys are really facing a Herculean task here. Uh, it's like sending you into the lion's cage. Do you feel like that? Uh, yes, we do. You know, you got to be realistic about things. We're, we're a young team. We're the youngest Olympic hockey team ever. If you had to pick us, I think it would probably be picked fifth. The Soviets blew out their first two opponents with a combined score of 33 to 4. The seventh-seeded Americans opened against the heavily favored Sweden and trailed 2 to 1 late in the final third period. Here again is Al Michaels. I remember the U.S. had several opportunities to tie the game and you just got the feeling, and of course as the clock ticks down and now you're under a minute, 
Well, it's it's not to be. With only 41 seconds to go, Brooks pulled goalie Jim Craig, which allowed him to put an extra skater on the ice. But in return, it also left the American net empty. It was a desperate move for a desperate team. Fighting for control of the puck with 29 seconds to play. He was just trying to get it on net. And I couldn't believe it when it went in, you know. You can always wonder if Billy doesn't score, what happens to the hockey team? Well, Billy did score. And the Americans in the key game in the first round tie it up. That was the biggest goal of the Olympics because if the Americans lose that game, they're virtually out of contention before the Olympic Games start. Two days later, the Americans faced Czechoslovakia, underdogs again in a game they had to win. Many people said that the Czechs were considered the second best team in the world and the only team that had a chance to beat the Soviets. Well, we pretty much dominated the Czechs. Then late in the third period, as the Americans were skating to a 7-3 Valentine's Day massacre victory against the second best team in the world, Mark Johnson, the team's star player, was knocked to the ice from a cheap shot by a Czech player. As Johnson lay in the middle of the ice, Americans watching on television were introduced to Herb Brooks, up close and personal. I'm going to take this stick and I'm going to stuff it down your throat. People were ready to hear that kind of thing. He would not have sat back and let the Ayatollah stomp all over the U.S. while holding a bunch of hostages. I think that was one of the moments where a lot of people in this country said, hey, they've got a pretty good little story taking place here. We have these fresh-faced kids, got to keep an eye on these guys. And look at this coach. I mean, he's right there, backing his players. So everybody's starting to look ahead to this prospective matchup against the Soviets. But before that, you have three other games. Norway figured to be the easiest of the games, and it was. There is Pavlich who gets it back to Selk, who scores. Davy Selk from Mark Pavlich. Then you had Romania. Preston, he scores. And they won that game. Germany presented a little bit of a problem, though, on, on Wednesday night, the last game prior to going into the medal round. Germany leads 2-0. So wait a second, what's going on here? You, you don't want this bump in the road. You don't want it now. And then the U.S. is able to come from behind and beat Germany. So they did all of the things they had to do. But then, of course, you had the specter of the, the Soviets just looming there. Seemingly no one, certainly not a bunch of college kids, could stop them from winning the gold medal. Herb Brooks, after all, wasn't coaching a dream team. He was coaching a team full of dreamers. There's a big difference. Today, the concept of amateurs in the Olympics is as obsolete as eight-track cassettes. The expression dream team has become part of the five-ring lexicon. Herb Brooks would later see the dream team as ironic because when you have dream teams, 
you seldom get to dream. But this was a game of striking contrasts. It was experience versus youth, men versus boys, champions versus upstarts, communism versus capitalism, all on a sheet of ice in the Adirondack Mountains. After studying the Soviets for years, Herb Brooks could sense their overconfidence and told his team to take advantage of it. I kept whetting their appetite. Someone will beat those guys. Someone's going to beat those guys. I don't like how they're playing. They think they're better than they are. Brooks also thought his team was giving too much respect to the Soviets. So he began chipping away at their mystique by poking fun at their leader, one of the top players in the world, who just happened to look a lot like a famous comedian. Boris Mikhailov was as close to, I mean, the hockey chief of the world as there was. And Herbie starts teasing the guy all week. Look at that guy's nose. God, look at that guy's face. Looks like Stan Laurel. And he's insulting the guy. Ha ha ha. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. Piece of cake, guys. And when we come back, our final segment, The Miracle in Lake Placid in 1980. The U.S. Olympic hockey team, their story continues here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and we continue with our final segment in this hour-long celebration of the United States Olympic hockey team's remarkable performance in Lake Placid in 1980. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. To relax them, to keep them focused, and also plan and say, hey, someone's going to beat those son of a guns. Then, on Friday, February 22nd, the Cold War was put on ice. The 13th Winter Olympic Games. The excitement, the tension building, the Olympic Center filling to capacity. In the locker room before the game, Herb Brooks gave the speech of his life. You were born to be hockey players. He told us we were born to be a player. You were meant we were meant to be, to be here. here. This moment Tonight. was ours. This is your time. And he told that story about going up and spitting in the eye of the tiger. If this is our time, this it's not their time. This is your time. Screw them, Stan Laurel, all those Russians. Now go out there and take it. It's our turn. And I remember a telegram we got from a lady in Texas. And all the telegram said was, beat those commie You realized that the USA on the front of your sweater meant that you were playing One, for your two, country. Three, USA! Here we go as the game is underway. The Soviet Union in red and the United States in I remember for the first five or six minutes, feeling as though I couldn't feel my feet on the ice. The Soviets struck first. And it was deflected in. And the Soviet Union leads one to nothing at the 9-12 mark of the first period. The Russians scored first, and you winced and thought, here it comes. But the U.S. team took that blow. Craig made some key saves. And then Buzzy Schneider came down the left wing. Up ahead to Schneider. Schneider goes in! Schneider! 
the tying goal failed to unnerve the Soviets. They quickly scored again, and it looked like the first period would end with them leading 2-1. to one. But with just seconds remaining, the methodical team that almost never made mistakes made the worst kind, a mental error, and it changed the course of the game. David Christian has the puck. It's about five seconds left to go in the period. I start to skate to the bench thinking the period's over. I've never seen Mark Johnson go scooting up. Like, he just didn't stop playing. He was still playing. The Russians had stopped. And made it one to nothing. Long shot, the easy save by Trediak, but Johnson is there and scores with one second to play in the period. Right now, the, the Soviets aimed to fix that mistake in the second period, quickly scoring the go-ahead goal. They dominated the action, outshooting the Americans 11-2 in the second period. Only Jim Craig's brilliance and goal prevented the game from becoming a blowout. But the Americans had never come from behind the best team in the world. And the Soviets always dominated the third and final period. It looked as if this night would be no different. That is, until lightning struck. Just 81 seconds later, the team's captain, whose name in Italian means eruption, triggered one. And that's when the building went crazy. I mean, that's when sound had feel. I mean, that was like an earthquake. Now we've got Bedlam. Oh, I love Brooks' reaction. Here it is again. The atmosphere in that arena was incredible. The feeling, the sense that they could do this, that they could actually pull it off. That goal coming at the 10-minute mark, exactly halfway through the period. When I sat on, I looked up and I went, 10 minutes. That's a long time against these guys. They could score in 10 minutes what would take us 60 minutes to score, and I knew that. Too much time, too much time. You can't hold them off this long. It was just a constant clock watch, shift by shift, shift by shift. It went on forever. I mean, time just stood still. Five and a half minutes to play. 3.53 remaining in the game. 2.25, 2.24, 2 remaining. It kept building and building, and the clock kept winding down. It just got louder and louder. 55 seconds, but they come up as the puck. 28 seconds, the crowd going insane. Carlemont. McClanahan is there, the puck is still loose. 11 seconds, you've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. The entire U.S. bench cleared, everyone except Coach Brooks. After throwing both arms overhead and doing a tiny pirouette and punching the air with an emphatic left fist, he walked straight off the bench, turned right into the runway, got patted on the back by weepy state troopers, and went back into locker room five. Herb Brooks locked himself inside an orange toilet stall and cried. Once the team made it into the locker room, they broke into a spontaneous chorus of God Bless America, filling in the words they couldn't remember with hums and whistles. In Lake Placid and all over the United States, the victory triggered an outpouring of national emotion never before provoked by a sporting event. On the Iron Range in Minnesota, people ran outside and hollered and shot off guns. In the Mediterranean Sea, the USS Nimitz 
one of the world's largest supercarriers, flashed the score to a Soviet intelligence ship that was nearby. The Soviets would not lose again for five years, and the Americans would not beat them for another 11 years. But the future domination came with no rewind mechanism, no clause that could undo what happened on Friday night, February 22, 1980. It was the 13th anniversary of the film debut of Walt Disney's Cinderella. Maybe it figured. The nation continued celebrating, but for the hockey team, it wasn't over yet. People always forget that the U.S. had to win another game on Sunday. It was still possible. If the Americans did not beat the Finns, that they would not only not win the gold, they wouldn't win any medal at all. And Herb understood this. And we were excited, we were anxious, we couldn't wait to get out and play. And Herb Brooks walked into the locker room, and he looked at us and he said, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your grave. Then he stopped, he walked a couple of steps, turned, looked at us again, and said, you grave. Once again, the Americans would have to come from behind. And we went out there in the third period, and I think we just steamrolled them from the time they opened that door and let us out. They didn't have a chance. Three unanswered goals in the third period gave the U.S. a 4-2 win and the gold medal. The Olympics broke Herb Brooks' heart in 1960 and made him the most celebrated American hockey coach in history two decades later. But on August 11th, 2003, in a single car accident, a little bit of the Lake Placid miracle died with Herbert Paul Brooks on the hot, hard asphalt of Interstate 35 in Forest Lake, Minnesota. As his casket descended down the steps of Assumption Catholic Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, it passed under a curved canopy of hockey sticks raised up by his 1980 gold medal team. Many of those holding sticks were fighting tears and losing the fight. If Herb Brooks' passing reminds us that human beings have a shelf life, it also reminds us that miracles do not. And this miracle didn't happen on accident. I see Neil Broughton skating on a flooded rink in Roseau, Minnesota, that his father got up at 2 a.m. to make in 25 degree below zero weather. I see John Harrington's late father Charles skipping overtime at work to watch his kids' games, because his overtime would always be there, but the games would not. And then see him years later listening to John skate against the Russians from the cab of his locomotive. I envision Margaret Craig running her goaltender son and all her other kids all over southeastern Massachusetts, a devotion that was absolutely unstinting until her cigarette habit caught up to her and cancer arrived. Behind every player, there are stories of love and sacrifice and struggle. Life is hard, and Olympic gold medals provide no exemption. You push on, do your best, and if you are really brave, you dream big, doubts and fears be damned. This is the stuff that miracles are made of, and the proof was there to see on February 22nd, 1980. And great job on that as always, Greg. And I'll never forget that day. I don't, if you were around, you didn't either. 
you knew where you were. There are some events where you just remember where you were. And I was at Paul Biatini's house, co-captain of my team. One of my dearest friends died in the World Trade Center, visiting an insurance company on the 100th floor. And what a day that was. The celebration everywhere. And we weren't hockey fans. There had to be 35 to 40 of us at the Biatini's. We all got called in through the quarters. We were calling each other's houses. And then we all got together for that final period. Not a quarter. Clearly, I'm not a hockey fan. But in the third period, everybody gathered at the Biatini's for the final round. This is Lee Habib. A great hockey story. The greatest hockey story here on our American Stories. The 1980 Dream Team. The real Dream Team. The U.S. Olympic Hockey Team. <laughs> 